This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to value listeners. This week, we have George Halverson, a retired American healthcare executive who served as CEO of six health plans over the last 30 years. And from 2002 to 2013, he was the CEO of Kaiser Permanente and was listed several times on modern healthcare's most influential people in healthcare. During his tenure at Kaiser Permanente, he led the nation's largest nonprofit health plan and hospital system. He was also a leader in the adoption of technology to advance community health outcomes and reduce health inequities. And under Halverson's leadership, Kaiser Permanente's investment in electronic medical records and physician support systems resulted in diminished infection rates and scalable population health outcomes within partnering communities. Since his retirement from Kaiser, George Halverson's devoted his time to promoting the benefits of early childhood education and to addressing social difference and tensions through his own institute. George Halverson's currently the chair and CEO of the Institute for Intergroup Understanding, a nonprofit organization that works on issues of racism, prejudice, discrimination, and intergroup stress and conflict by facilitating a collective understanding of what children need to achieve safe and productive lives. George is someone who leads with a passion to help create intergroup peace for our nation so that we may intellectually overcome our more negative and damaging instinctive behaviors. I'm so inspired by George's charge to lead in such a way that creates a collective and ethical obligation for all of us to help each child from every ethnic, economic, cultural, and racial group in America. Well, I couldn't be more excited to have George on the podcast this week. I mean, he's not only an expert in value-based care in the United States, but he's one of the most influential leaders in international healthcare reform with extensive experience advising the governments of Uganda, Great Britain, Jamaica, Russia on health policy and financing. And he's also inspired recent works about racial and ethnic prejudice and intergroup conflict around the world. He's published nine books on healthcare reform, such as Healthcare co-ops in Uganda and his landmark work, Ending Racial, Ethnic, and Cultural Disparities in American Healthcare. He also published four books on instinctive interactions for groups of people that really leads to this concept of inner group peace. I could go on and on about George Halverson's leadership and achievements that have made this world a better place, but let's go ahead and hear from the man himself, George Halverson, as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. George, welcome to the Race to Value podcast. It's so great to have you on this week. Great to be on the show. Well, George, I'd like to start our conversation today by talking about big data and healthcare. And you were once quoted as saying the following, the fragmented nature of care delivery and siloing of data creates an expensive plethora of uncoordinated, unlinked, economically segregated, operationally limited microsystems each performing in ways which all too often create suboptimal performance. And I really thought that was an articulate way of describing the lack of data sharing and interoperability throughout most of the health system as our country transitions to value-based care that aligns system accountability with cost and quality outcomes. It seems that we have this tremendous opportunity to integrate data across clinical, SDOH, financial, consumer, psychographic, behavioral, and engagement databases. And this would give us more 
of a consumer-centric tech-enabled infrastructure that can ultimately provide the necessary level of intelligence to drive population health interventions and truly improve patient outcomes. And, you know, during your leadership at Kaiser Permanente, the system cared for 9 million people, and you led a significant technology adoption initiative that led to the largest private medical record system in the world that provided an array of computerized data that was used in multiple ways to improve patient care. And examples include the development of computerized registry of total joint replacements, and as well as building one of the world's largest DNA data sets for healthcare research with more than 200,000 patient samples. And as the recipient of the 2021 HEMS Changemaker and Health Lifetime Achievement Award, I'd love to ask you about what you've learned about digital innovation in your career and how can we better leverage technology for patient-centered care delivery and value-based care. Can you provide your perspective for this potential for technology to revitalize patient engagement and create these consumer-centric models and drive data integration? And is technology going to be the holy grail for both scalability and impact in this race to make value work in our country? Absolutely, positively, yes. We are on the cusp of a golden age of healthcare delivery, and it's going to be made golden by information, data, and systems. We are going to have electronic medical records on all of the patients. We're gonna have all of the information on each patient that's needed to provide care, and we're gonna have that data connected between the caregivers for all of the patients. And when you get better data and patient-centered data, care gets much, much better. We should be able to deliver better outcomes for every single medical condition that we have, and we should be able to do that for less money than we spend now. Kaiser reduced the number of congestive heart failure crises events by over 40% by identifying who was at high risk for congestive heart failure. And then working with each patient to reduce the likelihood of a crisis event. When you do that, care is better, patients have better lives, less pain, outcomes are better, and it's much, much cheaper. And fee-for-service medicine and fee-for-service Medicare in particular do that very badly. They don't focus on conditions like congestive heart failure. They actually just pay for claims based on pieces of care and the claims aren't connected to other pieces of care, and everything is in non-functional silos relative to data flow, and that's just a horrible mistake, and it's also very expensive. We should have all of the information on the patients, and then we should be not only looking at that information in a patient-focused way to deliver better care, we should also be running algorithms against that data I've seen potassium level in the blood data picked up remotely by Fitbit data. That's how good the current systems and the current connectivity programs are. And we need to extend that kind of capability to everyone. And we should do it to the point we should be predicting heart attacks, predicting various kinds of cancer. We should be looking at blood levels and identifying who has a high likelihood of various kinds of cancer. And all of that technology is being developed and is going to be ready. And when it's ready and used, we need to have it used broadly. We're going to think of where we are today, even as being a dark ages two years from now. George, in this national transition to value-based care that you're envisioning, the movement to value has really become synonymous with equity. And racial and economic inequities have been brought to the forefront of American discourse lately due to the disproportionate number of African-Americans and members of minority groups who are infected, hospitalized, and die from COVID-19 at a higher rate than whites. And because of the Black Lives Matter movement sparked by the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and others by police. And the issue of health equities has been elevated in the national consciousness over the last two to three years. But for you, You've been leading a national conversation on the topic for decades. In 2013, you published the book, Ending Racial, Ethnic, and Cultural Disparities in American Healthcare. And in your book, you talk about how 
when we look at the broad array of available data about comparative care outcomes and care processes, it's clear that there are significant differences in outcomes and approaches that need to be both understood and responded to by us as a nation if we're truly concerned about the well being of all of our citizens. In the past, you've talked about how a Medicare Advantage for All policy would be an improved framework for the US health system to address inequities. Unlike the higher profile Medicare for All approach, a Medicare Advantage for All approach would have the advantage of a capitation system that allows for a variety of benefits, greater efficiency and patient satisfaction, customization, and a better emphasis on social determinants of health. I'd love for you to elaborate on a more refined national understanding of health inequities, including root causes. And then if you could speak more about your thoughts on Medicare Advantage as a superior model to improve health equity through those enhanced flexibilities and even addressing things like social determinants of health. And finally, is it possible that Medicare Advantage has become a very successful social services program for millions of people without anyone noticing that it was even happening? That's exactly what happened. Medicare Advantage, by going into the communities and enrolling disproportionate numbers of very low-income people, uh, minority Americans, has become the place where people who have been actually damaged and underserved for a very long time on their care delivery are finally, for the first time in their lives, getting both team care and systematic patient-focused care. At Kaiser, we put an electronic medical record in place for all of the, the people, and we identified people's race and ethnicity as part of that database. We actually tracked care outcomes by site, by race and ethnicity. So we knew that the death rate for prostate cancer was significantly higher for Hispanic patients in San Diego, for example. And we looked through that data and then we said, why? would the death rate for prostate cancer be significantly higher for Hispanic patients in San Diego? And we had very smart people drill down and identify the fact that the Hispanic males were not coming in for their prostate exams. There were many more stage four prostate cancers than stage one. And so we coached the doctors across the system and we actually got the death rate for Hispanic males on prostate cancer down to the death rate of other groups by having the data, knowing that it was a problem, and then drilling down and, and dealing with it directly. Even in Kaiser Permanente, where you've got the same doctors, same patients, the same employers, almost everything is the same. Even in that setting, we found that there were patterns different for African-American and some levels of care than for white Americans and for Hispanic and for Asian American. So I, when I wrote that book, I actually wrote, I went into that, that experience and, and I wrote about what you can do if you actually have the data and focus on it. And I also talked about the fact that we've got many communities where care is inferior and often bad and incomplete for low-income and minority Americans. I completely and totally believe that we should deliver better care to every single American and that we have done a pretty miserable job for many subsets of our population. And the fact that Kaiser, when we put that information in at Kaiser, we actually had a debate for a while. And some of our really good people absolutely were opposed to gathering racial and ethnic information in our database because they were afraid that it might be misused somehow or misunderstood somehow. But when we looked and saw how big the differences were, even in a system of that level of consistency, we said, we need this data. One of the things that we looked at childhood asthma, and we identified that mothers who had had uterine infection during pregnancy were much more likely to have kids with early asthma. Now, that, that's an amazing, amazing finding. And no one suspected it, but because Kaiser has both the mother and the child and the baby, Kaiser could do that research. But one of the things that was most fascinating about that was that it was about a 60% higher rate 
for the, the black mothers, African-American mothers who do have children who are twice as likely to end up with childhood asthma. And we know that when you know that, you can expect then when the kid hits to that age that you can start intervening early. Within Medicare Advantage, there are people who are dual eligible. Dual eligible means they have both Medicare coverage and Medicaid coverage. And to have both, you've got to be pretty low income and have some significant health issues. And the dual income population, basically 5 million of the dual incomes have now enrolled in Medicare Advantage plans. And they are getting better care than they have ever gotten in their lives because the care they were getting in the communities before weren't built around them, weren't focused on them, and didn't track their care in any way. And fee-for-service Medicare actually does not have one single medical quality standard. They don't track anything, which is just sort of amazing. So the, those patients, there was no way of knowing. And Medicare has no language requirements. And Medicare Advantage has language proficiency requirements. So the low-income people who are enrolling are getting much better care better outcomes and a higher level of satisfaction. And I think we're on the dual eligible people, I think we're getting close to a 90% satisfaction level right now on the surveys. Because when you haven't had any patient-focused care at any point in your life, and all of a sudden that's your world, that's much better. And when COVID hit, every single one of those dual eligible people had a care team and a care system and a Medicare Advantage plan on their side, working with them, helping them, guiding them in their care. And fee-for-service Medicare completely abandoned those people. They did nothing. Fee-for-service Medicare did nothing for the COVID patients. They eventually started allowing electronic visits only because there was such a, a major backlash and they did that reluctantly and they're still debating whether or not to keep it. Within the Medicare Advantage plans, electronic visits were already a norm. Before COVID, Kaiser Permanente had 60% of the patient visits were electronic. During COVID, it went up to 80. So back to the question. So Medicare Advantage is a better program and when you get the payment amount for Medicare Advantage, the way the payment amount is set up is they take the average cost of care in every county in America for Medicare fee-for-service. So they create a number for a county. The Medicare Advantage plans in that county are then given that number every year and they bid against it and they get to put out a price and they can get that much money from the government, the average bid, I think, is like 87% last year. So the, the plans bid, they, they cost less than fee-for-service Medicare. They bid, on average, 87%. And then they deliver care for that 87%. So they start with less money. They deliver care for the 87%. And then if they have a surplus, and they keep track of the care, and if the plans make a surplus or a profit, they then share that profit with the members, the way the plan is set up, by giving the members benefits that regular Medicare doesn't give them. So they get dental benefits, vision benefits, hearing benefits. They get a more complete set of benefits if you're a Medicare Advantage member, and they fund that entirely with the surplus that they create from delivering better care than fee-for-service Medicare. So fee-for-service Medicare has 40% higher use of congestive heart failure inpatient hospital days. That cost is in that average amount by the county. The plans have 40% fewer days. So there's a surplus. They take the surplus and they use it to give vision benefits, dental benefits to the members and as a result of that, low-income Medicare members overwhelmingly join Medicare Advantage plans. It's about 45% of the total Medicare population is in the plans. Two out of three, literally two out of three low-income Medicare members are in the plans. So low-income members are in the plans because they want the vision benefits. 
They want the dental benefits and Medicare basically charges less or pays less than they pay for fee-for-service Medicare in the capitation to the plan. So it's clearly a superior model. There are some people who are cranky about the fact that the health plans in delivering that model make a profit. Uh, And there there are people who sometimes attack the profits. The plan profits are 4.5%. All of the rest of American business makes 10 to 20% profits. The plans on Medicare uh, hospices make 11% profits. Medicare Advantage plans make 4% profits. So it's not high profit, but it's 4% against a big number. So, but the plans only make a 4% profit and they return surplus to the members both through lower premium and through better benefits. So is it a better model? Absolutely. And MedPAC, I've had had kind of a running debate with MedPAC recently because MedPAC is opposed to the extended benefits. They basically have said, we don't, we shouldn't take that money. What they have literally said is, if Medicare Advantage can do it for less, Medicare Advantage should just charge less and not build a surplus and not build the additional benefits because the additional benefits increase the expectations of the low-income members, and that's an expectation that we can't afford as a country. They literally say that, which is sort of horrible, uh, cold-hearted at best. There's so many ways we can go with this conversation and exploring Medicare Advantage as a viable vehicle for transformation in the industry. And I thought you made a really compelling case for presenting that evidence of Medicare Advantage being a superior program compared to the standard fee-for-service Medicare. I wanted to talk a little bit about your response in health affairs recently. Last year, you know, you had Richard Gilfillan and Don Berwick writing a two-part series and of articles and health affairs expressing their grave concerns for the future of healthcare and specifically around Medicare Advantage and at the time the CMMI direct contracting model which has kind of now been reformed to become ACO reach which uses a lot of those MA like levers for capitation the position that Gilfillan and Berwick talked about was well stated and expressed their concerns from everything from these private equity-backed physician aggregators providing these per-life investment valuations that were exorbitant and the overpayment to MA plans and the risk adjustment gaming and the perverse business model of MA using their terminology, I guess. But they talked about this extraordinary profits. And, you know, you've already talked about that a little bit, but you wrote a really good response that you talked about like this long string of inaccurate information. And I wanted to see if maybe you could at a high level discuss some of these concerns with just the profiteering, the alignment of quality programs with financial awards, and ultimately this power of capitation to really improve outcomes in underserved communities. Maybe if you could set the record straight for those that are kind of still on the fence as far as MA as a viable vehicle for payment delivery transformation. Yeah, I'd be happy to. First of all, that that was absolutely untrue about the high profits. We know what the profits are. They're 4.5%. They knew that. They pretended that it was over 10% on the profits. If you look at their piece, uh, they had, will find tiny little pieces of extraneous and misleading data and throw it into the argument. And I really objected to them for saying that there were excessive profits. And then they, when they went off and they talked about the, um, and they spent many pages talking about the various healthcare consultancies that are being set up around the topic of Medicare delivery, care delivery for the plants. And the truth is not one penny of that money came from Medicare. That's all stockholder investment money. And I think some of the stockholders have invested in sort of silly things because I, don't, I can't see where those particular services are going to get money downstream that is worth for those initial stock prices were. But that was not Medicare money. They were very misleading in their article. They literally said the Medicare trust fund is going to collapse if all of these people invest in these companies that are providing those levels of care support services, and there is no possible linkage between those services and the, and the Medicare trust fund. It doesn't exist. 
And so I have been not focusing on those issues, but I read that article and I was furious. And I said, this is so, so horribly deceptive. And these are good and credible people saying this stuff. And the fact is those companies that they spent many pages talking about in terms of the support services, there is no linkage of any kind of those people to any Medicare dollars. They are the plans who get Medicare dollars. Some of the plans hire them to do some services, but they hire them to do services with their 15% of the administrative costs that they get for Medicare Advantage. In the Affordable Care Act, one of the most brilliant things in the Affordable Care Act was the 15% restriction on insurance company administration and profits. Because in the, the bad old days, there were some companies that made 30% profits. Most of the profits were relatively low, but some were quite high. But the Affordable Care Act did a brilliant and wonderful thing by saying the total amount that the insurance companies can charge for both profits and administration is 15%. So if you can administer for 10%, you can make a 5% profit. And 10% is about a reasonable administrative cost. So that particular concern is just being distorted beyond reasonable levels. And, and, I, and I read that and I said, geez, this is just terrible. I've got to write a response to this and put those numbers out there. And they also said that the coding numbers, there was a massive, people were upcoding. This year's MedPAC report said that they are worried about up to a 9% upcoding overpayment to the plans based on doing that kind of upcoding. And a couple of points on that. One is that number was always a fantasy number. The 9% was never, ever, ever a legitimate number. And, and they always said, concerned people believe that the number could be as high as. They never actually had a database that identified 9%, but they said, concerned people think it could be as high as. But what's happened now is CMS, completely and totally eliminated the coding system. You can't upcode. Literally, the coding system that the plans had been filing for over 15 years where they've been filing the codes, CMS just eliminated it entirely. So the plans can't upcode. They can code all they want, but whatever coding they do stays in their own shop and doesn't affect any Medicare cash flow. What CMS did instead was brilliantly get their information about who's diabetic from the actual care encounters filed by the care site. So to find out how many diabetics there are, they go through all of the actual care encounters, not some artificial um, database. They go through the actual encounters that the patient had with the system and they count how many of them had diabetes as a diagnosis on that form. And that came from the medical record and nobody in America screws with the medical record because that's really almost sacred information. So they get that information from the medical record on the encounter form, and then they know what happened for the patient. So they can't just put in an encounter and have it be unrelated to the care, they actually know the encounter of the care. So anybody who thinks that Medicare Advantage is upcoding now can just look at the fact that the coding system is gone. You can't upcode into a system that doesn't exist. So the, the plans deliver better care. There are 90% of Medicare fee-for-service on average. They generate a surplus in every county, and the surplus is based entirely on the average fee-for-service cost of the county and the actual expense that the plan had. They use that surplus to provide better benefits for the members because members uh, get it in return. And so they have better care. And even during COVID, the plans managed to bring down the cost uh, or the level of blood sugar or improve rather the level of blood sugar management in the five-star plan. And the five-star plan is one of the best care plans anywhere in the world. I've worked with the European Union. I worked with health ministers in half a dozen other countries. I, I worked with those folks and I know what all of those countries do for their quality agenda. I chaired the International Federation of Health Plans for a decade with health plans from 40 countries. 
know that world. And I know for a fact that there is no plan in the world for quality better than the Medicare Advantage Five Star plan. Well, George, I wanted to ask you one more thing about that MedPAC report real quick. I mean, you referenced in great detail their concerns around the the upcoding and how that's non-existent. But there's another point that they made in that report where they're talking about how Medicare Advantage benefits increase the overall cost of Medicare rather than actually using the Medicare cash flow more consistently and effectively. And I've seen differing research on this. In the MedPAC report, they're saying that Medicare Advantage pays 1% to 2% more overall than traditional Medicare. And But I've seen other data that says that you know Medicare Advantage can cost about 40% lower for total cost of care than those that are in traditional Medicare. Can you talk a little bit about that in terms of the difference in cost savings between traditional fee-for-service Medicare and Medicare Advantage? Yeah, absolutely. It's actually really simple. And the answer is when the plans are bidding way below uh, Medicare, on average, 80% of the counties, the plans uh, charge 90% or less. And we know that's true. We absolutely, we don't have to guess, you know, 90% of that's the amount of surpluses that are created in those counties. And you can't get a surplus if you're a Medicare Advantage plan, unless you are below the average cost of Medicare in that county. So you start with the average cost of Medicare in the county, that's a legitimate number. And then the plans have put their bid in, they get their capitation they deliver their care, you add up the cost of their care. And if there is a surplus, then plans earn that surplus. And they have earned that surplus in in 80% of the counties, and it's more than 10%. Then there's another piece of Medicare Advantage that they never talk about. And the other piece is the other 20% of the counties. And the other 20% of the counties are the counties where we have really lousy care. There are counties where we have no care for infants. There are areas actually where we have the lowest availability of caregivers for seniors and for children. And what CMS does in those counties, in that 20% of the urgent need counties, now the term urgent need ought to be a clue that CMS determines this to be a high need. So they brilliantly have gone to these urgent need counties. And if you enroll a Medicare Advantage person in that county, you get paid 115% of the average cost for Medicare. So it's literally 115% in those urgent need counties. And 20% of the Medicare Advantage members are in those counties. So if you do the math, if you take that 20%, pay them 115%, pay everybody else less than 90, it comes out to 104%. That 104% is the number the MedPAC talks about. And they say, when you look at the overall number, the Medicare Advantage members cost slightly more than a fee for service. And they don't tell you that it's 90% in 80% of the counties and 115% in urgent need counties. And if they were truly ethical in their description of an honest and open and informative and intellectually legitimate, they would explain clearly what that urgent need county strategy is, why we have it, what it does, and the fact that 20% of the members are there shows that people in those counties are getting better care because that program exists. So that's the difference. 80% of the counties, it's clearly 90% or less of the cost of Medicare. In those other counties, it is 115 and it adds and it totals out. What's amazing is almost nobody in the country ever talks about the urgent need part of the program. It's brilliant. It's a wonder. And the people who figured that out said, what do we have parts of this country where we have no care for kids? The counties that have really tiny amount of caregivers for children qualify to be an urgent need county and the urgent need 
then is met by Medicare Advantage being paid more in those counties. Now, you can argue that's not a legitimate use of the Medicare dollar. That would be a totally different argument. And it might be a good argument for someone to have. And it should be minimally discussed. You should not throw those numbers in there and then say, because of that, all of those 90% counties now actually on average are 104. That makes sense? Yeah, no, that's really great. Thank you, George. I appreciate your in-depth analysis of the Medicare Advantage program. And, and I want to shift to another question and talk a little bit about organizational culture and how that drives a successful value-based care strategy. And, and corporate culture should really be a tool of strategy. And for the culture to be the tool of strategy, you have to actually have culture in the first place. If you're going to have a continuous improvement strategy that drives value, for example, you need internal trust, data sharing, and a whole series of cultural elements that support shared learning. And I've heard you reference an old Zen saying in prior interviews where you said, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And I think that's a key concept to keep in mind when talking about individual change management and organizational culture. And when you think about the change as learning and learning as change, a bedrock concept in successful change management, the teacher can make the difference. And when we say that, when we think about that quote, when the student is ready, the teacher appears, it means that a teacher can light the way, they can ease the way, in other words, facilitate learning, but the learner still has to walk the path. And when you arrived at Kaiser Permanente, people didn't share data. In fact, there were rules against data sharing and people could actually lose their job if they shared data. And you as the teacher led a cultural transformation to obliterate these data silos. For those out there listening to the interview, what kind of skills are needed to lead a value transformation? Should organizations entrenched in fee-for-service be thinking about bringing in a new type of leader to serve as a cultural change agent? And will legacy thinking by incumbent leaders experienced with the legacy model of care delivery be able to effectively manage the disruptive innovation needed for a true value-based care transformation? Culture is extremely important in the delivery of care. You really want to have your culture. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. You really want your organizational culture to be built around the patient, to be built around transparency, to be built around data sharing to be continuous improvement. We'd, we identified half a dozen goals at Kaiser Permanente when I got there that we were going to target as our end culture. We wanted to have a culture of transparency, honesty, and continuous improvement. And continuous improvement is actually a strategy and a toolkit, a belief system, a goal, and a culture. So continuous improvement is all of the above because if you do continuous improvement, you're collecting data, you're looking at the entire process, you're identifying how to enhance bits and pieces of the process. And Deming said you, every single process produces the output that it's designed and set up to do. And if you want a different outcome, you have to change the process. So we went upstream and we changed process. Our sepsis death rate when we started down that, that process was about 30% of the sepsis patients were dying. And uh, that's true across the country. So we looked at that and we said, okay, sepsis death rate, 30%. What can we do to bring that down? So we made it a priority to diagnose as quickly as we could, got it down to about 25%. Then we worked on the, on the chain and figured out what are the various things we can do for a sepsis patient to reduce the death rate and get it to a, a lower number. And there's a, a golden half hour on sepsis. And if you treat within that half hour, you save almost every patient. So to treat within the half hour, you have to redesign the process. You not only have to diagnose quickly, but you have to treat quickly. So we originally, when we ordered the prescriptions, we would have it go to the pharmacy and have them deliver, but you can't get 30 minutes if you get a pharmacy in the loop. So we took the sepsis medications and put them on the floor in a, in a drawer ready available. So the diagnosis happened immediately, got top priority. The, the medications were already on the floor. They immediately got to the patient. When I left, the sepsis death rate was down to 3%, went literally from 30 to 3%. No, that's the number one killer in American hospitals is sepsis. 
that took continuous improvement to get there. You, you cannot get from 30 to three in one step. You have to have dozens of steps and you have to have people working together and then they have to teach each other and then they have to share with each other and then they have to share the results and celebrate the results. And, and on a culture, if you change a culture, you both have to articulate the culture and celebrate the culture and reinforce the culture and reward the culture. And there are about seven things you do in the, in the world of culture change. And if you're really managing the culture, you do them systematically and intentionally. And, and you don't just hope you get lucky and have a culture get better. You literally say, we need to articulate this culture. We need to communicate this culture. We need to describe this culture. We need to reinforce this culture. I mean, there are literal steps in culture change. And Kaiser did a lot of culture change. The answer to your question is that for the entire country, we need to figure out what culture do we want. And culture should be uh, continuously improving everywhere and patient-focused everywhere. Those are two things we can transplant to every care setting. We don't have to reinvent those. We can decide that we're going to be patient-focused and do continuous improvement. And then we can drop that in, in, in a philosophy pretty much everywhere. But you're exactly right. And, and so if we're going to really get to the next level of optimized care, we need to do those things together. That's perfect. And, you know, George, speaking about culture and organizations, and I'm really interested in the work that you're doing to improve the culture of our world. And that's the work that you're doing with the Institute for Intergroup Understanding. And as I understand your institute, it exists to create intergroup peace by realizing that we can intellectually overcome our more negative and damaging instinctive behaviors and in effect the us versus them mentality that instinctively divides and creates dangerous intergroup interactions in our society and the mission of your institute is takes advantage on some of the best features of us being us and preventing a lot of those worst features of being them in in every setting of America and and I know you have a a specific chartered purpose around helping every child receive the full benefits of early childhood support so groups can prosper and realize the American dream. Can you speak a little bit about the importance of instincts and giving us the power to shape our lives and how your institute teaches people to steer away from some of these dangerous intergroup conflict and divisiveness in order to create a, a better world for our children? Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, thank you for actually articulating it so well. We are all creatures of instincts. Every one of us is instinctive. We're instinctively tribal. We're instinctively hierarchical. We're instinctively territorial. Uh, we're instinctively emotional. We have um, interaction instincts, bonding instincts. And those instincts are very, very powerful. And some of the most powerful instincts we have are to divide the world into us and them, and then to like and support and defend whoever is our us, but to be critical and antagonistic and negative toward them. We enslave them, we firebomb them, we feel no guilt when we lie to them. And, and that's actually one of the, the major issues. We literally feel no guilt when we lie or deceive them. Sun Tzu in Art of War basically said that you are supposed to lie to them. That, that ought to be your skill set and your goal. And, and there's no ethical standard involved. And so it's a very slippery slope. And, and so if we go down the path of identifying that somebody else is of another tribe and therefore not deserving of our ethics or our loyalty or our honesty, that puts us into a very dangerous situation. And we need as a country to come together as an American us again. We need to be an American and we need to rise to the ideals, our highest ideals and our highest ideals involve being a democracy, but also involve telling the truth. We need to make truth-telling, again, a, a part of the culture of America, and, and we need to hold each other to that standard, and, and we need to hold ourselves to that standard, and, and, and particularly in political things. We should each, and, and not enforce this on anybody else, we should each individually agree 
that we're not going to say anything in a political setting that we know is not true at the time we say it. Uh, that's one of the things that we're going to be working on with the Institute is, is a truth agenda. And the truth agenda is not to define the truth or figure out the truth from an objective perspective, but literally to commit to not saying anything that we believe and know is not true at the time we say it and then respect each other enough to give each other that standard. So what we're trying to do is trying to figure out what can we do as a country to come together again and to come together in a way that causes us to be our most enlightened and positive selves. And one of the things that is part of that agenda is helping all the kids because neurons, we are epigenetically wired so that the neurons in our brain connect in the first three months, in the first three years of life. And if we interact with kids in those first three months and first three years, neurons connect by the billions and trillions. And if we don't, we get to age four. And at age four, the brain literally changes. Harvard Center for the Developing Child shows you the charts. The brain changes at four, and you cannot build those neurons in that connectivity in any effective way after that time. So we need to help every single kid in America before age three. We have enough money to do it. We could do it. Part of our unity as a country ought to do that. But when you look at who's in jail in America, if you're an African-American male and you have dropped out of high school, 60% are in jail in their 30s. Not 60% are likely to go to 60% are in jail. 80% will be in jail. And if you're an African-American male in America and you graduated from high school, 10% are in jail. So 10% of the grads, 60% of the dropouts, we literally know with 80% accuracy by age three, which path. So we need to get everybody on the right path. So part of what we're trying to do with the Institute is teach that basic epigenetic reality and then get us to support every child and then the back end of the agenda is we should have universal coverage, healthcare for everybody. Healthcare should be affordable for everyone in America. We have enough resources to make that happen as well. And if we have continuously improving care, it'll be much more affordable. So um, the, the Institute is working on, and in the middle, we're trying to get everyone to understand our instinctive behavior, because when we understand our tribal behavior, then we get to make choices. And one of the tribal behaviors we have is to hate anybody who's a traitor. We are really hardwired to reject traitors, hate traitors, not to want to be a traitor. And that's an instinctive value and emotion. And when you understand that the, the traitor part of the agenda isn't really uh, an underlying ethical underpinning for the universe. It's actually an instinctive behavior we each have that opens us up to be more flexible within our own groups of not rejecting people or interacting with other groups for being a traitor. And it also gives us an opportunity to interact with people from other groups without feeling that we're betraying our own group. And that's much easier to do when you understand that that's an instinctive behavior. And I've taught that in multiple settings, when people realize that that's an instinctive behavior and not an underlying value for the universe, you get a lot more flexibility, both in your own emotions and in your own interaction. So the Institute is trying to work on that. So I've actually produced six books. The Institute for Intergroup Understanding, if you go to the website, there are six books on intergroup activity one of them is, is Art of Peace. Uh, one of them is Primal Pathways. One of them is Three Key Years about brain development children. Those books are all available free on the website. Well, George, I wanted to ask you about one of your books, The Cusp yeah. of Chaos. Thinking about your discussion of tribalism and how that's instinctual, I mean, we're, it's hardwired in our, our human conditioning and 
and how we need to do better in intergroup interactions and and create this better world. And when you wrote that book years ago, I know you were looking at the genocide in Rwanda and the Sarajevo mass killings and the intertribal bloodshed and rapes and mutilation and mass killing and all the the genocidal behaviors that were going on at the time. And five years ago, I, I you know I also saw that you wrote. This blog about the ethnic cleansing in Syria, which was a conflict entirely born out of tribalism instead of ideology or economics or politics. And, you know, fast forward to the modern day and, you know, we're seeing a lot of this uh, same thing happen in Ukraine and in that current conflict. We're seeing a lot of the war crimes and atrocities with these mass graves. And, you know, I've I've even read children being used by Russian soldiers as, you know, human shields. And, you know, a lot of that, it seems like it's coming out of this, the worst case scenario of tribalism as a rationale for, you know, what Putin's doing in Ukraine. And the world is really struggling in terms of how to stop him and stopping the tribalism that's taking place. And we have that in our own country, this sense of tribalism that's being driven by politics and fake news and social media. So I just wanted to ask you, with the work that the Intergroup Institute is doing and you, just your own, you know, experience in, in international healthcare and expertise, you know, how can we as humans somehow learn from this exhaustive list of intergroup ab- abuses in our world? How can we overcome them and not continue to repeat these uh, same evil mistakes of the past? And with regard to the violence that we're seeing in Ukraine, I mean, what are the implications potentially on the American healthcare system as it plays a role in uh, supporting children and families? I, I would just love to get your perspective on all that. Thank you. We need to help every child from every group for started. We've, we've gotten very tribal in our politics. Much of our tribalism is now racial and ethnic. George Floyd was actually a really powerful, powerful learning moment for America. And the Me Too movement was an incredibly powerful learning opportunity for America because we started to get much more aware of, of the gender issues. And I have like three chapters of my books are about the same, that kind of gender discrimination and, and prejudice and, and antagonism. And, and part of what I argue is that we are all saints and we're all angels. And what we need to do is intentionally activate the angel part of our personality and deactivate the devil. We need to avoid the evil part of our personality, and it's easier to do that if you understand where it's coming from and know that it's not actually right to feel that level of anger just because it feels right at the time. So it it creates context and it creates intellectual underpinnings and, and it creates a chance to do intentional things so we, we need uh, intelligent people to be aware of these instincts, and we need to steer ourselves individually and as groups away from the easy abyss and the anger and the, and the easy tribalism into a higher level of, of interactions. And, and I think that is almost a just-in-time learning opportunity. I, I think we are at the point now where we can and should be learning this and, and learning at an intellectual level for the first time in our history and, and to, to see the patterns in that, that piece that wrote about Syria and the tribalism there. On the last page of that, it talks about future places where things were going to happen, and it actually mentions Ukraine, and it mentions Putin. And it said, in the future, one of the things that's likely to happen is Putin is going to want the part of the Ukraine that is Russian-speaking. That's very tribal to him. He's going to want to go in there and get that. And that's something we can think as a possibility down the road. So I actually wrote about Putin and Ukraine in that piece that was five years ago, and he's doing it now. So the, the patterns are very clear. When you understand the intergroup patterns, you can predict the future as well as interpret history much more clearly. And the beauty of it and part of the power of it is it stops being all incidental. Because when everything seems like it was an incident, then we get angry, we get upset, we attribute blame in a different way 
two things. But if we see, no, this is just a natural pattern. And if we look at the patterns down the road, what Putin is likely to do in Ukraine is try to get that part of it. I mean, literally four years ago, five years ago, I wrote that. Because the, the, the patterns are so obvious at that level. And I also presented that to some people in our State Department at that time. They gave me a, a, a hearing and a discussion and a conversation, but weren't convinced. And I, I'm thinking, back to your point, there's a huge opportunity right now. We need to rise above our lowest and most damaging instincts, and we need to build on our best instincts. Because at our best, we're loving people. We're supportive people. We're caring people. We're nurturing people. At our best, we really want to take care of every kid. And we want the kids to do well. And when you're taking care of somebody else's kid, there is no better proof point for the willingness to get along and be successful collectively than to help the kid. So that, that's why the Institute has kids and brains and healthcare in, in the package. And the book before that is Primal Pathways and says, here's the dozen instinctive behaviors we have to make us, us, them, tribal. Alpha instincts are incredibly powerful, dangerous, and threatening because when anybody gets to be alpha, they do not ever want to give up being alpha. And, you know, we just saw a president on January 6th who is alpha not wanting to walk away from the alpha status. We see people who are in office who try to stay in office for um, lifetime. Uh, the number of religious leaders who give up power, the number of union leaders who give up power. When you, when you look at the patterns of power, once you get alpha status and you're getting the neurochemical rewards that come from that, it's very addictive. So we need to have our leaders be alpha servants and not um, just do it for the power. And then we need to understand and steer them in the right direction. And we need to lead our leaders in the right direction. And the leaders actually, one of the interesting dynamics in the world is that leaders often will get feedback from their group on directions and get steerage. And it's actually possible to steer the leaders in various organizational settings if you do it in an intentional way. So I think there's an opportunity right now. I think that we're gonna to have to get this right. I think we've got a, a relatively short time in this country to steer us back to a good and safe place. But I also think that we've got a chance of doing it. And the reason I think there's a chance of doing it is there are so many good people who want peace, who want to get along, who would prefer to tell the truth. Well, this has been a great discussion. I, I really appreciate your time today and, you know, sharing your expertise and providing such thought leadership on uh, such a wide array of topics. You know, I think our listeners are going to be better for it. I guess, you know, as a parting thought, how can people find out more about what you're doing with the Institute and where can they learn more about the work that you're doing now? Go to the website. Two websites to go to. One is Three Key Years. Three Key Years is the web, threekeyyears.org. Threegears.org is the website for brain development and family development and children. And then the Institute for Intergroup Understanding website has thought pieces on all of these topics, plus half a dozen books. And you can order the books. Amazon will deliver them, or you can actually read them free on the website. And I, I've done about 20 healthcare books. What I decided to do uh, when I started the Institute was to make the books electronically available for nothing. And then if you want a hard copy, you can uh, get the hard copy and you can get the that version as well. But go to the website, take a look at the thought pieces, interact, and, and then uh, try to get your local school board to work on the kids' brains and, and, and try to get your local political folks to understand that uh, we need to be less tribal and and just basically respect each other enough to return to some of the old values, including telling the truth. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's a great point to wrap on, George. You know, thanks again for sharing with us. 